All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast Series, the number one sports podcast series in the world. Well, we're not yet, but we're certainly working our way towards it. So before I start, I just want to thank everyone who's supported us so far. And can I please ask that if you're enjoying what we're doing, please subscribe on whatever your preferred platform is on YouTube, uh, Spotify, or, or Apple Podcasts. And please make sure you follow us on social media, at Wandering Bear Sports on both Facebook and Instagram. I will continue to try and be as entertaining as possible. So all your support's truly appreciated. This week's podcast episode is brought to you by Caffeine Gum Australia. So Caffeine Gum Australia is a company that both Kate and I own. And what we do with the, pro- with the company is everything we earn through the company goes into supporting the podcast. So it's, it's allowed us to, to get upgraded microphones, all the audio stuff. It'll, it allows us to get some of the guests. Um, and it allows me the time to edit and to put out this content. So all the support through there is truly appreciated. It's a great product. I've been using it since about 2015. And even though I don't play sport anymore, I still use it every morning before I do martial arts. And before the gym, so I don't have like the milky coffee sitting in my stomach. And most importantly, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but it's actually batch tested. So it's suitable for professional athletes and semi-professional athletes who might have to pass a drug test. And it's World Anti-Doping Authority approved or WADA approved. So check it out today, www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. All right, let's introduce today's very special guest, Mr. Stephen Hoyles. So Steve is actually the most requested guest that I have to get on this podcast, which I think actually surprised him when I told him that, but it's no surprise to me as he's done quite a lot in his career uh, and is a very interesting person. So in his playing career, he played for the Brumbies, the Wallabies before coming back for a long-term injury and then playing for the Waratahs in Michael Checker's Super Rugby winning side. He's also been an assistant coach for the Australian Men's Sevens team. He's worked as a commentator for Fox Sports and is now the head coach of the LA Guiltinis in the Major League Rugby competition. So this was a really fun chat. We talked a lot about what it's like setting up a new sporting franchise in the sports and entertainment capital of the world. And a lot about coaching and overcoming obstacles and some of the lessons he's learned along the way. So people will enjoy this one and I certainly enjoyed it. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mr. Stephen Hoyles. Hey buddy, how are you? Good, how are you? Hey, sure good. Headphones are working. Oh, you got the whole setup, look at you. Look like hey. Kyle Sandland. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going for, mate. How are you? I'm well. How's life? Yeah, life's good, mate. I'm finally escaped Sydney and got up to Foster for a week. So, yeah, taking the whole operation. So I, I can't complain about life, mate. Back to the pub. Back what, to what the gym. What are you doing? What was I doing? No, what are you doing for a living? Yeah, what are you doing now? Um, so I do this. This is part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Make a lot of videos for rugby players. As, yeah. As, as you know. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, do websites. Um, sell caffeine. Did you ever have the military gun when you were at the time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yep. I sell I sell that in Australia. Yep, yep. Okay. So, so you're the whole industry. Yeah, so I'm just hustling, mate. <laughs> um, mate, th- let's get into it. I got a hard out at seven thirty. Yep. Does that work for yeah, you? Yeah, perfect. Um, yep. mate, thanks for doing this. You're easily my most requested uh, guest. So, thank you okay, for making the time. Um, no, no worries. First question, mate. Why did you leave Coogee commentary to go over to LA to become a rugby coach with Darren Coleman? <laughs> yeah, when you say it like that, it sounds a bit odd. Look, I, I was coaching sevens at the time. I was, I'd started doing both in Sydney. Timmy Walsh was the sevens men's sevens coach, and he was the guy that approached me to see if I wanted to coach. And at, and and what was, were you, you know, what were you doing with the sevens? You just coaching forwards or just I, helping? I was out? assistant coach. Yeah, it's kind of like you, the beauty about sevens is you you have to coach everything. You know, you I was coaching forwards, but I was coaching the ruck. I was coaching the contact defence. It was. Yeah, it was. You, you learn a lot about, um, a lot in a short period of time about all the aspects of the game. And um, so I was doing both. I was coaching sevens. Um, part of the deal was I didn't have to travel to every tournament. That was sort of the big one for me. Like with the young family, I just knew that I couldn't be away that often. So, and then the, I was in LA for the LA sevens, and it was a year before the Olympics, and we got home like 
literally the week that COVID hit. But as I was over here, bumped, I caught up with Adam Gilchrist, the owner of the side, and uh, I've got an F45 in Kudu, so I had a relationship with him previously. And I was at the LA7s, and it was just starting to pop up that LA were putting a team in the, the MLR, and you know, Gilly was looking into who was going to be coaching. And, yeah, so I kind of got really excited about it, came home, and then COVID hit. And then I had a pretty tough call to make to do I stay with the Sevens or do I stick with LA, which I'd committed to, because how it was going to look was it going to be, you know, we just qualified for the Olympics, go to the Olympics, hopefully do well, come home, pack up the family, and then move over to, to LA. So then that, that, that decision became like, yeah, one of the bigger ones I've had to make. And I felt bad at the time because I'd invested a couple of years into that Sevens program. And, but um, when I say it, it was a tough, decision to, to go through at the same time it, it wasn't hard because I'd never lived overseas my whole playing career I was always in Australia just thought it was the right time like mainly with my age of kid the ages of my kids it was if I don't do it now like my oldest is 13 if I didn't do it now I didn't want to be doing it in two or three years time when it was close to the finishing high school so yeah it was it was really a, a too good an opportunity to turn down to, to start up a new a new rugby team in the sporting capital of the world and take your family on, on an adventure was coaching something you always wanted to get into? Yeah, my whole early part of my playing career, I always just thought that's just what I do. I'll coach, I'll play footy and I'll coach. And it wasn't until I got injured like midway through or late towards the end of my career, I got injured. And I just sort of, I, I had to reassess like what I wanted to do. And I did a little bit down at Ramwick in between my times being injured. I didn't love it, but that, that was probably because I was a frustrated player still. I was trying to come back from injury. Yeah, so... I then purposely made sure I'd, when I retired, I wanted to leave the, the dressing shed, get away from footy for a couple of years. And I did that. So uh, just to see if I really missed it and, and I did miss it. And um, yeah, when that phone call from, from Walshie came, it was almost like the, the nudge that I needed to, to get into it. So I, I certainly love my time doing, doing media and doing other things, but yeah, playing's the best thing I've always thought in rugby and, and being in that dressing room in some other capacity is pretty close to it. Mate, there's a few things. I was, I was going to talk about your injury later, but it might be a good time to yep. do it now. So you had a long-term injury. Did you, I guess, what was that period of your life like? Like, were you were you planning on retiring or were you always planning on coming back after that? Like, talk, talk us through it from yeah, your point yeah. of view. I, I sort of had a, I pretty much went, for like, I think it was 2010. I essentially just had a couple of significant injuries. I had a an Achilles surgery after playing the whole Super Rugby that year. That didn't go well. But in that time, I hurt my back again. So I had a bulging disc. I ended up having surgery on my back. So I came back from that, from the back surgery pretty well. That was what everyone was worried about. Like back surgery is quite significant. But I came back from that really well. But then my Achilles hadn't healed in that time. So I ended up missing all of 2011, all of 2012, all of 13. And I got to, and I was trying to get back to play Super Rugby for 2014. But I'd, yeah, I lost my job in Canberra because I was unable to play. Um, so I had to yeah, pack up from Canberra, move back to Sydney, and I still was going to miss another year or two. I, I knew I knew something wasn't right with my foot. We just couldn't work out what it was. So that was a foot. It was a foot injury. That was what was keeping yeah. me out. Yeah, it was it ended up being. Um, everyone kept telling me it was like Achilles tendonitis, and oh, you got to get your calves bigger and your calves aren't strong <laughs> enough. I was like, man, these calves have always been this skinny. That's not the reason. They got me to this point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So. I had one day, I, I sat down with Michael Checker, just signed with the Tars, and he was moving back from Ireland. He'd been coaching Leinster. And he obviously didn't know the Australian market that well because he'd been overseas for five or six years. So he started asking me about a few players over time, like he was trying to fill his squad for that 2013 offseason. And, and I knew I wasn't going to be right for them, by the way. So then I had a coffee with him. And he kind of asked me in a, what I'd be interested in doing recruitment for him. And, and I was almost... I was flattered but offended at the same time. Like I wanted to keep playing rugby. And I just, that was kind of the moment where I went home to the wife, had two young kids at that stage. And I was like, can't sort of keep life on hold. So made us bite the bullet. And I'd always been thinking in the background, if I couldn't get things sorted in Australia, I'd go overseas to a surgeon who was Swedish, who was, you know, like the sort of one of the world leaders in this type of injury. So did you do, um, did you do a lot of research into that to find this person? Yeah, so a lot of the documents and a lot of the reports you read about tendonitis, um, they were reports from this guy called Hacken Alfredson. Um, there's also there's the Alfredson protocol, which is like a rehab. You go up on two cars and you go down on one. So yeah, trying to eccentrically load the one going down. He was he's Alfredson. He's the guy. So I knew who he was, and he was always referred to as like 
one of the best. Um, even the tendon specialists I've seen in the RAS, they were always referring to this guy, Huck and Alfredson. So I just contacted him and said, look, this is my situation. Can you help? And he, he was really confident. He's like, yep, get over here. I'll operate. I operate out of Sweden and London. Um, I reckon in about a week's time, I was on a plane with my, my father and I, and we headed over to Sweden. And he fixed it. Essentially, just found a loose bit of bone in in my tendon from a previous surgery. That's what it was. So it was it was a, mis- a surgery gone wrong in Australia. And um, I came home. I think eleven days later, Dad and I were home, and I knew I wasn't playing for another six months with the rehab. But I, I kind of got on that plane coming home, knowing that he'd fixed it. This little sharp significant burning pain that I constantly was getting yeah. had gone so then it was just a matter of rehabilitating my um so then I went up the Gold Coast and I trained and I sort of took myself out of Sydney for a little bit and lucky enough to get a spot in that Waratahs squad really just as a training contract at the end of 2013 for 2014. So so you're always intending to come back and play. What was yeah I could imagine that would have been a really hard time for you in your life because what were you late twenties at the time? Yeah, I think I yeah I'd turn thirty. Yeah, so I came back at thirty two. I missed like 28, 29, 30, 30, 29, 30, 31. I came back at thirty two. So you've um, had oh, sort yeah, of three years. Sorry, you go, you go. No, no, I, I just was always in my mind. I was I was never retiring. Like the the beauty about going over to this guy in Sweden was that he'd cut me open, um, as opposed to the keyhole surgery I had done here. This guy was, you know, I've got a, a big long scar like that down the back of my heel, but I knew that he'd either fix it or tell me he can't fix it. And if he told me he couldn't fix it, then I'd have closure. And you were good so, with that? Yeah, I, was, I would have been good with that, but I needed yeah. to know. Like, it was not just I couldn't play rugby. Like, I couldn't couldn't walk on the beach without sand shoes. I couldn't chase kids at yeah. the park. It was, like, really – it was really starting to beat me up. So I just knew I had to get a, I had to get a result or an answer one way or another. Uh, so, look, I, I think now, and I, I look back at it, like, yeah, it was hard. Like, I, I didn't get have a job for three years because I kept having these false starts trying to get back, and I'd, I'd left the Brumbies and – um, you know, I'd missed out on a few chances, contracts overseas because of it, and th- things like that. It was, but if I think about it now, and I, you know, like that year 2014, like I, it's it's the year I made the least amount of money in my whole career, but it's the year I had the most amount of you know experiences and and learnings from. So, yeah, I, in a really weird and twisted way, like I'm glad it all happened. I was going to ask about that. So you've you've gone through this three years into the Michael Checker Waratahs, which is a pretty special team. And I could imagine it would have been a pretty special couple of years for you in particular. Do you have any like standout memories from that time? And like, what was that time like? Cause I could imagine you would have absolutely savored every second of it, particularly going through what you'd just gone through. Yeah. I walked in that team and I remember just sort of making a promise to myself, like, I just was like, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to pretend it's day one again. And I'm, I'm you know, I, I was at the Waratahs, I think, 10 years earlier. Yeah, I was there 10 years earlier. So I was like, and in between that, I'd gone down to the Brumbies for five or six years. So in that time, you sort of start off as a young kid. You're, you're oblivious to the surroundings. You just train, you have fun. You wake up sore, you do it all again. As you get a little bit older and you become maybe a senior player or there's leadership responsibilities, you do have to work hard to, to focus on yourself and make sure you're enjoying it. And, and I definitely along the way with the injuries and whatnot, I, I definitely sort of left Canberra not in a great headspace. So I promised myself I'd come back, I'd enjoy it. I had no responsibilities of sitting in leadership meetings or tactical meetings about. I just turned up, trained and played and had fun. And I, I did have a feeling really early on, like before a ball was kicked, we went down, we had a trial against the Rebels in Aubrey, Wodonga, and it was 46 degrees kickoff and 45 degrees by full time. Mm-hmm. And I remember that week, because we did like an amazing race in this sponsored by Volvo. It was a really fun week. It was a, it was a stacked team. Just been talking to check the night before, we all had one-on-one meetings and, and I just had this, and I never had this feeling before in pre-season. And I wish I had gone straight to the tab and back the Tars because I'm probably paying 50 to one at that stage. But I just had this really good feeling that this side was going to do very well. And I still wasn't contracted to the side. I was on a week-to-week scenario. Um, so I was kind of just playing for my life almost essentially every week. And there wasn't one moment, you know, like I, I do look at the two years and even though they were incredibly fun and they were very hard, like they were two of the toughest years physically. And I, and I'd missed out on a few years. So my body was definitely catching up on me. Um, 
but we worked hard for that, you know, like that was the biggest thing I, I took out of those two years as much as it was fun. Like I don't care how hard training is. If you're winning, you're having fun. So yeah, yeah that team worked hard and they're disappointed we didn't win it again the following year, but we went close, but, but not good enough. Um, just before I forget, uh, you know, you mentioned Czech asked you to help with recruiting before. Yeah. One of my favorite conversations during that period is where you guys had a meeting with Itavea um, my good friend yes. to try, to try yeah. and convince him to become a prop and his yeah. the conversation I had with him after I wish I'd recorded it <laughs> it was one of the so best I took, conversations I took it I, I told Chuck I said this guy's really good like he's a number eight as well it was my position I said and I'm still fighting for my own position but I just knew that Ida was a special player you know like and we know his story and it was and then again that's why I feel so fortunate like I got to to finish my career I wanted to he had health concerns that stopped his but Check was like, I don't know if we need him as a back row. We've got enough back rowers. Will he play prop? I said, he can only ask. So we, we went into his office and he doesn't <laughs> say too many words. And Check goes, would you play in the front row? And he's like, yeah, I'd play the prop. I can play the prop. But I saw <laughs> him like, the other what days. Side, what, what side? He's like, I don't mind. The loose, the tight. I play, the pro- <laughs> I play both props. <laughs> and he was going to do it, you know, like. One of yeah. the funniest people. Um, mate, while I got you, it's, I, I feel like it would be, like it's a rare opportunity for someone like me to talk to someone who's been a part of a new sporting franchise in the sporting and cultural capital of the world. What's it been like being a part of creating a new culture from scratch? Cause it's, I, I've, as a co- I've just started coaching and to me, we're trying to change South culture from someone that likes to compete to, to someone that wants to win every time. So it's, it's yeah. changing an existing culture, but you, you've been a part of starting a brand new culture. What surprised you? What have you guys done differently? How's the whole experience been? It's been an unreal experience. Like it's been a lot of fun. I think if you were just, if you were to view the LA Guiltinis purely from social media, it probably looks like everyone's here having the best time of their life. And there are certainly times when it has been like that. And But it was organized chaos, to be honest, when we got here. Like it was... So it was all COVID, that, this was all planned, like what you guys have been doing? Yeah, like we, we sort of went in with the approach, like we've got to do things differently here, not not just be different for the sake of it, but, you know, like I've just always sort of had this thought, like why does rugby have to be so serious? Why do you have to put on the RM Williams and the Chino pants and players have to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and give you the sort of diplomatic answers so they – the players trusted the environment where there was a camera in front of them all the time. So the players were just themselves. And you know what footy teams are like? Every team has lots of larrikins. Every team has funny guys and every team has stressed guys. And I think our environment just allowed them to be themselves. And they weren't afraid of what was going on social media. There was, you know, like we, yeah, like it was, it's been very unique to be able to do it. Like we didn't even know the name of our side until a month before it started. We didn't know what our logo was, our branding. We didn't have a clubhouse. Like we landed in, so I flew over at the end of January and I flew over a week before Darren Coleman and my job was pretty much to go and find us a location to spend the first five, six weeks because California and LA in particular was just, was too rife with COVID. We just couldn't be here. So in space of about three or four days, we just kind of diverted everyone, land in LA, get on a flight to Maui. We spent five weeks in Maui. We found fields. We are training at polo grounds. It was, guys were cooking for each other and it was just, yeah, and then guys were without their families. That was the other thing. So kind of in a really short period of time, just allowed us to to spend time together, and and then everyone's families sort of slowly started to trickle in, and the club did a really good job of making everyone and their families feel welcome. And you know, kids are hanging around the facility. Like no one here has anyone else but their family and their footy friends. It's very similar to probably early Brumbies, uh, Brumbies in a way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly right. And and even though there was a a, a core group of camp. Canberrans down there, like your Gregans, your Ross, your Larkins. We had that as well. We had a cool group of Americans. And yeah, it's just been a first year was a lot of fun. Like we definitely had a side that was capable of winning it and and that showed. But um, yeah, DC, Darren does a great job with that stuff. He's He made a really good effort of just being himself and allowing the players to enjoy themselves like he enjoyed himself. So year one was good. I could imagine five to six weeks in Maui would have been pretty fun. Yeah, depends how you describe fun when you're living with Darren Coleman and two other coaches in a three-bedroom condo and he, he doesn't cook 45 nights straight. That that becomes fun, just observing pe- people's habits. But, yeah, it was good. Like, 
every day you had your sorry, I'm just moving because I can hear one of my kids coming home. And um, every day, you, yeah, every night you sort of sat there watching the sunset and watching whales just swim by your villa in this little old two, three star condo. And, and that, you know, most of the other teams, almost all of them were stuck in small group training back in, in lockdown. And I think that's where we did well, to be honest. Like as, as good as our side looked on paper, we got away early and we, we trained hard. And even the guys, there was 17 Australians that trained us pretty much all of November, December yeah. together before they flew over. So we, we had a physical advantage on everyone because we were fit and we started really well. And, and the guy after about four or five weeks was like, wow, we're, we're really blitzing teams. And I think we got a little bit complacent and teams caught up and uh, then we had to work hard for it in the end, which was, which was great for the competition. What's COVID been like over there? Is that lighting okay? I'm trying to get a light yeah, on. You're, um, you're all right, mate. Sorry, bro. Um, right. No, nah, COVID. Um, has it has it improved been... since last year as well? Yeah, so it's not dissimilar to Sydney. You know, like we're on New South Wales during the, the lockdown. Like we're, it's, LA is still probably getting between 200 to 500 cases a day. But during okay. the lockdown in Sydney, it got up to the worst it got up to. We got really lucky. So we got through the season before the Delta variant hit. And then we had a, like we had a scare within the team a week after. And we, we had to do testing three times a week. If you had a certain amount of players with COVID, we had no COVID cases all year. And we dodged a few bullets, like absolutely dodged a few bullets, you know, like, and we got lucky and we didn't have everyone vaccinated. And we've still got that, that issue with some people don't want vaccinations and sort of still navigating our way through that. But overall, like it's, I've lived, a, it's been a really, um, really good life. Like we're outdoors as well. So, we're in a really nice part of LA. I hadn't heard much about it when I came over here. Manhattan Beach, Hermosa yeah. Beach, Redondo. It's kind of the same strip as Santa Monica, but down the other end. So it feels very similar, honestly. It feels as though like if Santa Monica is Bondi Beach, Hermosa Beach is Coogee or Cronulla or DY, you know, like it's nice little communities, feel safe. And all the things that I was a little bit worried about with a young family, I've been pleasantly surprised by. Has anything surprised you jumping from an assistant coach to a head coach? Yeah, it's probably a bit too early to answer that just because we haven't started in, in the off-season. How these contracts are set up is the guys are really – the guys that are staying here in LA all year are only staying here because of the borders and not being able to get home. So we've kept a few sessions going on for them, but contractually we don't have them until January again or December. So I know a lot of things like a, a lot more responsibility, a lot more time with um, sort of developing relationships with players and – just sitting in a lot a lot more meetings and planning things you don't have to do as an assistant coach but but so far like it's, it's way too early to tell but I, the the enormity of the role and the you know the pressure and the nerves are all starting to hit me because we're about probably 25 days away from pre-season now do you, do you still get nervous yeah yeah absolutely like i i think it's the same as playing the second you stop getting nervous before playing a game it's probably when you got to give it up like yeah i get, I get this year i'll be more nervous than ever like sort of on my shoulder so yeah what, do you do you have any ways of dealing with it or is it just something you go all right fuck it i've just got to get on with it because I'm, I'm only asking purely for selfish reasons because yeah. i'm stepping up as a, a head forwards coach this year and i'm nervous about it even though i've been yeah. there 16 years so I, I i found uh yeah like on game day this year like i had to early on i'd be a bit tense in the box so I'd, and i hadn't done anything so like I sort of just made sure I give myself a good workout the day of the game before the game, yeah. um, just to kind of release some endorphins and calm yourself. We always feel better after a good training session, don't you? So that that definitely is something I'll do. But no, I'm I'm like you, mate. I'm, I'm finding my way through it as we go. And you know, we we've only just this week like that. We're about twelve weeks away from kickoff, um, and it's still such a young competition here. Like, not every team has their field locked in. We don't have specific dates. Like, there's a lot of things that. Yeah, it's still it's a fifth year competition, so there's always going to be some teething problems. It's not like it's a Super Rugby and there's a Sansar that yeah, a months ahead in in planning and programming. It's 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 as I said, it's the Wild West here a lot of times, but uh, the, the product itself is was good. The footy was the most important thing, and that was good this year. Have you have you managed to tap into any of the other sporting teams in LA? No, COVID made that a little bit hard this year because teams are still on, like the NFL, for example, they're on pretty strict sort of bubbles of who can come come in and 
who can leave. A few of our staff have just started doing some things with USC, the Trojans, the, the, the football team. We share the same facility. We play at the Coliseum. So, um, and a lot of our medical team and they're sort of associated with the LA Kings. And we, we train, it's really weird. Like, so we train in, bet- in between the Lakers facility and the LA Kings. So like the basketball's over here, our two fields are here. And on the other side of us is the ice hockey team. So we are in this little town called El Segundo, which is probably the equivalent of mascot Alexandria. It's like right near where the airport is in LA. Um, but in this little hub, you've got, you know, pretty much all the major sporting teams besides the football, besides the NFL teams, they're a little bit out of the suburbs because they need more space, yep. but haven't tapped into it yet. But uh, I've, I have got right into <clears> American <throat> sport and like learning the game of NFL, always followed it, but not, not avidly. So really starting to appreciate that reading a lot of books on um, NFL and coaching. And there's, there's so much, there's so many sports here and there's so much to learn from a coaching point of view, like the college football coaching side of things. You've got, pl- you've got coaches that are, preferring to coach college rather than NFL teams because of their resources and funding and career progression. And it's fascinating things I had no idea about before I got here. Um, well, I was going to ask about personal development later, but we may as well ask about it now. Do you, do you do much reading? Do you do listen to many podcasts? Do you, do you reach out to other coaches for chats? Like how have you gone about yeah. learning the coaching trade? I haven't reached out to too many coaches. I think I will over time. I don't want to go into my first year saying <clears throat> I need to have this or I need to have that. I need someone to support me. Like I just need to learn that for myself. And then if that means learning by making mistakes, that that's how I always learn, unfortunately. Like, um, so in terms of podcasts and stuff, I, I know like DC, Darren Coleman would listen to five or six a week and he'd listen to all the ones on the MLR and it's just not how my brain works. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, without trying to sound disrespectful of the game, like I don't obsess over the game of rugby. I don't need to watch a huge amount of it. I don't need to listen to it. I'd rather learn about other sports and how other sports do things. So yeah, all the books I read growing up, like I, I reckon I've read every rugby league autobiography in Australia from Fitler to Siren and to Wayne Pierce. Like I love all that stuff. Joey Johns's book. If there's an athlete that I, that I saw and followed, I'll read their book in a heartbeat. Like I, I, the sports that I follow, you know, like rugby league, rugby union, surfing, um, I'll watch, I'll read all of those books. I'm watching almost every 30 for 30 documentary I can over here now. Yeah, so I, I watch a lot of it, but I try not to watch too much rugby. Um, I try and watch rugby as a fan. That's still when I watch a game, I just sit down and watch it. I don't sit there with notes. Maybe I should. Maybe I'll evolve into that. But um, yeah, personal development, like, I'm really, I'm really open-minded about how I do that this year. And there's been a few people reach out and I think those things have to happen organically. You know, I think those relationships and there's a handful of people that I could call tomorrow and I'm sure when it, when the time comes, I, I will, but I sort of just gone into this year, this off season, just definitely aware that I've got to work on myself first and, um, you know, get my work-life balance, my time management, all that stuff's really important. Um, yeah. So I'm sort of in the process of going through all that at the moment. No, mate, it's good to hear because I like I don't obsess about rugby either. I, in fact, I'd rather just watch it at the pub having a couple of beers with the boys rather than sit yeah. down and write notes. Like I, t- I did a podcast with Laurie Fisher last week and he, he'll yeah. watch five games a week and like break yeah. it down and review it to see what trends are happening. And yeah. I, I'd get very, uh, I'd probably fall asleep after just one game doing that. And I think you just got to know your personality. Like Laurie's probably probably one of if not the best on-field coaches I had in my career um, but he's just very different personality to myself and that's probably one thing I have learned by reading about the coaches over here and you know the Bill Belichick versus the Bruce Arians and like one thing I've learned you just have to be yourself I can't try and be yeah. um, you know I think Bill Belichick's family was was in the army or something like that so he's kind of been brought up with that type of um, military approach to coaching like I'm the furthest thing from that. So I can't try and be that other person. I've got to, i got to stick to who I am and, and what works for me and just try and do that as best as I can. And I do think you need someone in your organization that has to be like, you know, your Laurie Fisher type of person, every, per, whether that's your analyst or it's a forwards coach, or, you know, you need someone like that, that knows all of that. But at the same time, you know, I'm coaching rugby because I love the sport and I enjoy it. And I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm doing it because I'm not I'm putting 10 hours of watching games just for coding. Like that's just not going to, I'm not going to enjoy the game as much. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mate, you've had some good coaches through your career. Have you, have you sort of lent into that for your coaching, you know, for, for getting your own coaching style, for lack of a better way of saying it? Yeah, look, I think in a short period of time that the two guys I worked under with and Tim Walsh and Darren Coleman, two sort of personality-wise, they're polar opposites, but learn a lot from both of them in, in terms of how you lead an organisation, like the time that they put in and the the relationships they have with their players. I think every coach I've had, like, honestly, I'm always, like, I reckon 90% of the stuff I'd be talking about this year as a, co- as a coach here would be something I've heard from someone else and might have slightly had my own little variant to it. But the philosophies and the style for you, you learn growing up and the coaches you play under, they definitely shape you. Um, even the ones that you didn't think were very successful. Like there's not one coach I haven't learned something from, whether it be good or bad. Like, yeah, part of me wishes I wrote it all down when I was playing. But at the same time, like that's part of the fun. Like I'll be thinking, I'll be watching a drill at training. And I'll be like, oh, that's what I remember so-and-so said this and it makes complete sense. And yeah, other coaches influence you more than, than, than some, but yeah, I've, I've been lucky enough to play under a lot of good coaches. Yeah. But it's um, some, something I've learned this year is that sometimes learning not, what not to do is just as important as what to do. In, in fact, yeah. probably more important in, in some ways. <clears throat> Mate, you were mentioning books before. Can you recommend any? Because I've got a, a lot of listeners that are into development and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, any book recommendations you could throw at people would be greatly appreciated. The most recent one I read, and I, it's, it's really um, relevant for us. Like it's, it was called A Season in the Sun. It was the book just come out on Bruce Arians, the Buccaneers coach who won the Super Bowl, just gone with Tom Brady and how they recruited. Just basically, it's kind of like a book on Tom Brady and Bruce Arians. And it's, it's really relevant um, to me and how he sort of sets up his team and what he does expects of his staff, but also how a guy like Tom Brady in his, whatever it is, 23rd season, how he still demands to be coach and the, the time that he puts into his game. And yeah, like it's, we've got a few senior players, a few guys that I played with that are, that are probably coming back for another season and just sort of puts the focus on, doesn't matter how old or how young they are, they all want to be coached. You know, you can't take for granted that, yeah, they're just here and all that. Those guys are fine. They've been doing it long enough. They know what to do. Like sometimes you have to show those guys more, more time and more affection and, and give them just as much love as you're giving the 18 year olds. Have you found coaching guys like Dave Dennis, who you played with? Has, was it weird to start with or were the guys pretty open to it? Well, it's it was not weird, but it was, yeah, if, it, it makes you uncomfortable, to be fair. Like, it's a little bit daunting, the thought of it, but they're such good pros that it makes you want to become a better coach because you know that you have to be prepared to what you're going to say in a meeting. You know, you've, you've thought about it. You haven't just plucked it out of the air. Um, and, and those guys, like, yeah, they were, in all honesty, like Adam Ashley Cooper, Matt Guido and, and Dave Dennis, they were enormous for us this year and we wouldn't win the title without them. We wouldn't have won it without a lot of players, but those three in particular, like especially the last few weeks, they really sort of came in and, and made the team realise that playing finals and playing for championships is, you know, it's, it's a different ball game altogether. And and there's a there's a absolute reason we signed those guys. Like they've all won multiple, like if you look at Gibbs, I think he's won... Super Rugby, he's won Europe three yeah, times, Japan, he's won Japan. French three times, Japan twice. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone's done what he's... The only thing he hasn't won is a World Cup and English Premiership because he hasn't played in the Premiership. So, um, and, and more important for this year with Dave Dennis, he won two Europes, two Premierships with, with Exeter. And, you know, we always thought that we'd have a side good enough of winning the first year. The reason, like, I was really keen on having those guys here is because, you know, I've never won anything two years in a row. Like, I've never gone back-to-back as such and I think the attitude to that it's as much as it's on my shoulders it's still very much on the on the senior players to lead that way um and that's that's in that book as well about you know Tom Brady says something everyone listen the coach said something not everyone listen you know like players have certain players have the attention of the room better than anyone can ever imagine so when you when you guys were looking at signing these guys the Obviously, they're wonderful players, and I'm sure they're good people. I, I don't know the guys, but I'm sure they're great people as well. But taking into account the fact that they are winners, was so that That's, was a big um, consideration. Yeah. Massive, yeah. Like that was the 
honestly, I had this same conversation with DC. We need to find winners, like guys that have won big things and been able to win them consistently. Might not win every title every year, but like they, they win every day. And it's, you know, like in Hawaii this year, like we were sort of sharing, everyone was in about 12 different condos and it was Sunday night. And I think the guys had a few beers. Sadarava, so some guys are a little bit dusty and hanging by the pool on Sunday. And everyone was kind of, you could hear one room was like a PlayStation and one room was a music room. And you just walk past and you saw it was Gitz, Deno and Adam Ashley Cooper and Deno's cooking dinner and Gitz and Cooper down writing their notes for the next play, the next day's training session. And a few guys the next set, next day weren't as prepared and they forgot things. And, and you know, a gentle reminder from Gitz, like there's a reason why he sits up and spends half an hour just writing his notes the night before. Because if you don't do it on, you finish training Friday at 12 o'clock and you don't train Saturday, don't train Sunday. Yeah, your brain is going to be as rusty as your body on Monday. So you've got to, prime yourself up a bit and you know those guys to be able to they don't talk they don't talk too much they don't tell guys what to do too much they just do it themselves and the other guys see and that's if I think back to the best leaders I had it was you know when you're a kid and you're watching everyone go home from Brumby's training session you look over and there's three guys in the gym two hours later and it was Larkham, Gregan and Mortlock and they're doing their extras and the, the best players do up. more don't they yeah they do yeah absolutely yeah so yeah. even at a shoot shield level, I, I get a lot of the younger guys going, what can I do? What can I do? And you go, go and go and look on the field. And there's um, Christian Kagias is kicking goals. Yep. The leading yep. point scorer in the shoot the shield. Yep. Andrew Tuala's throwing line outs, you know, one of the best hookers in the shoot yep. shield. It's no, no coincidence that the best players are doing more than everyone else. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's, and that again, it sort of taps into all the things you say over here in LA, like, Every time you see something on TV, it's about Kobe Bryant's work ethic or what made him, what makes him or LeBron better than the guys in their team. It's it's really it's what time they get up, how hard they start working, and what time they start working. I've got to ask you about mentors, mate. I, I can imagine uh, in the co- coaching world. So I've got a bit of a cough. <clears throat> I, can, I can imagine DC has been a good mentor for you in terms of becoming a coach. Do you? And obviously, the guys like Matt Gitto have, have even if he hasn't done it on purpose has been a mentor for all the young guys there in LA. Do you think that mentorship is important for people in general, coaches, athletes? Like, what's your take on that? Yeah, whatever word you want to use, but I think a friendship, coach, mentor, I think it's, you look at role models, like you think in every young boy's life, you've got to have role models. It's often their dad or their brother or their uncle, but, yeah, I think they're incredibly important. Um, yeah, I still can remember who were the guys when I first came in professional rugby, who were the guys that put their arm around me and helped me and who were the guys that probably tried to make it hard for me. And, you know, you can I can still remember to this day who the, the guys that went out of the way to make you feel welcome and, and comfortable in that environment. Because it is pretty daunting, you know, like we're going to go through it now. We're going to have a few guys hop off planes in two weeks' time and they'll be sitting in a team room next to guys that have you know been pro rugby players since for 15 years so yeah I, th- I think having those friendships are available like that's the whole reason rugby is a unique game isn't it because the friendships that you develop along the way yeah well abs- mate absolutely it's the best part of the game and and in terms of learning having someone like like D- dc's he hasn't lost a lot in the last three years i think he might have lost mm. how many games did you guys lose one no, over here we lost. How many we lost three games. So yeah. he, he would have lost, lost less than ten games in the last three years. So he's yeah. he's someone he's someone that's become very much a winner. So seeing how someone like that works, even like mentorship, kind of implies like a formal arrangement. Yeah, where it yeah. doesn't. I don't think it has to be like that. It's it's even just watching how someone works and how they go about, you know, the way they speak with other people and building relationships. Yeah. That seems like something that's so valuable for young coaches like us. Yeah, it is. And I, I, as I said, like I think DC's record in this was the week that we were about to play a game. He, he got Steve Larkin was trying to contact him, and they were sort of playing phone tag. And this is when DC was going through the whole Waratah thing, and everyone was trying to contact him. You know, a lot of people reaching out to potentially want to be assistant coaches and whatnot. And and Bernie Larkin was reaching out and. And they've known each other from the Brumbies days, but Larkin's now coaching Munster and they had a big game. I think they had their their final on up there and he'd, he'd in true Larkin fashion, like he's a bit of a stats guy, he'd um, 
realize that DC had like a thing was like eight out of 10 senior premiership success rate and getting the grand finals and winning them. And this goes back to when he was player coach in Canada, player coach in Italy. Um, yeah, and I, DC was, you know, he had a, I think an 80 or 90%, I think it might be nine out of 11 in major grand finals. That's a pretty good record. Okay, nice. Yeah, and a, and a lot of it, just been able to see how he conducted himself in the week of the finals, you know, like that's a big thing. Players will feed off your energy. Is the coach nervous? Is he relaxed? Is he confident? Does he think we can do it? Is he cocky? Like just letting the players feel. And, and this was a unique situation because everyone thought we were going to win. Like once we won our first three games, the whole the whole world erupted in the MLR when we lost that first game to New York. Yeah, that everyone was stoked. We were the we were the clear favourites and pretty pretty quickly became unpopular. So, and we're going to go through it next year. Everyone's going to expect us to win. So it's yeah, it's about dealing with accepting the pressure and and dealing with it and and not letting it distract us. Do you do you keep an eye on Australian rugby much? Yeah, yeah, keep a, a close eye on it. Obviously, didn't get to see a huge amount this year with club footy getting shut down relatively early and um, didn't get to see a huge amount of super rugby either, but tried to watch most test matches this year. Yeah. What's your take on the way the game's progressing in Australia? Oh, I, I thought for a long time we, we lost our ability to play ad-lib footy. We sort of went down a very much a, a structured Structure. path and, yeah, and, and that's okay because I, you know, I, I've been in sides that are really structured and I, I like it, but also I like the ability to play outside of that structure. Um, I think it's unique, and I, this is a really sensitive subject, but I hope it comes across the right way. We've got a, a massive amount of Polynesians playing the game now, and they need to be coached very differently to how I would have been coached as a kid. So understanding what is the best environment, and you can start to see it now, Like, and I think why Dave Rennie, his background, I sort of always felt pretty confident that he was going to do a good job because um, he's done that so well. Like that's what New Zealand rugby do. They allow players that have this natural flair in them. They allow them to to be able to play like that whilst sticking to a framework. So one of the hardest things for Australian rugby is we play the All Blacks so much and they're going through a, a period of 20 years dominance, you know, like that's, if you think it, if you look at the history of Australian rugby versus New Zealand rugby, we've only really had a two or three periods of three to six years where we've been dominant over them. And one was in the eighties around that 84, 86 time. And then the 91 sort of era. And then again, in that 99 to 2002, 2003 era, we were pretty good again. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a really tough Australian rugby is just going to have to always punch above its weight and, yeah, we beat the Springboks twice in, in a calendar year and we've gone from, what have we gone from seventh or eighth to third in the world. So it's volatile, but, but I think that they're, they've got the right people involved to turn it around, that's for sure. Mate, someone said this to me the other day, is, is that we, we play the best sports team in history three or four times a year. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, you look yeah. at Wales. Like Wales exactly. got smacked by them the other day and our analyst over here, he's Welsh. He's like, they're just so much better than us. So I was like, yeah, well, that's what happens to us. We play them three or four times a year. And, and I don't think we should accept our record of not beating them this year. We've, we've got to strive to be better. But, you know, there's so many things you can look at. Like, is it played in enough schools in Australia? Probably not. Like, how can we fix that? Why is it only a private school game? But at the same time, the private schools are so well-resourced and funded that they're helping produce quality players for us. So it's it's so complicated. And I, I still think I still think that we probably rush guys into pro sport and, I've, I would drop the Super Rugby sides back. I know that's not a popular decision, but I would probably go to three or four um, and make guys probably develop a little bit more in clubland before they put on Waratah and Wallaby jerseys. But, you know, then there's the threat of league. If you don't have these sides, all these good school boys will go and play elsewhere in the European and Japanese markets and even the MLR now. So there's threats all over the place, but I you know, I still think the game's healthy. It's, it's always going to be healthy in, in Australia. Whether we win or not, that's a different thing. Um, it's in interesting you mentioned about structure. I was talking to Ben Volavola, who, uh, of course, yeah. played for the Tars and, and the Crusaders. And, and I asked him, what do you think the biggest difference is? And immediately he said, without hesitation, they were doing a, a live training, so 15 on 15, and the winger was free. And rather than do like a crazy cutout or like a kick pass or whatever – 
he he just did the conservative option and passed it to the guy next to him. And uh, Razor Robertson said, why didn't you get the guy the ball? He goes, oh, uh, it was risky. He goes, I, I don't give a fuck. If the guy's in space, you get him the fucking ball. Whereas yeah. in his experience in Australia, it was very much let's do the less risky thing. Let's play conservatively, yeah. percentage play, percentage play. So I thought that was a, that was an interesting take on it. Mike, Mike Yalatoa said something similar. Um, mate, that's pretty much yeah, I all I got. I got what, what, you hear, what you hear about them is in it, and we were talking about the Crusaders today again, like from all reports, it's, they just, and New Zealand rugby in particular, like they just spend so much time on core skills, the amount of time they'll stay. They, they, and that's why they live and breathe it. Like it's the greatest thing in New Zealand to be an all black. And it's, you know, whether it is the same for a young kid being a wallaby, I can't speak on their behalf, but they just, their basic skills are, are so finely tuned. And you just look at McCaw as an example. Like he was, he got better and better all the way through his career. Like his last game was probably his best in that 15 World Cup. And there's, whereas we, I felt like in Australia, we have this, you, if that's your strength, you stick to your strength, you know, like whereas they've found a way of making sure everyone has a really good level of basic skills. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Guy Miller, who played at Eastwood, also played yeah. at the Highlanders. So yeah. they would they would actually practice charge downs at training. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. never seen that in any team I've been in Australia. Yeah, so that's the level that they go to. Yeah, yeah. Um, mate, just a couple of rapid fire questions, and I'll I'll let you go. Uh, where's Where's your favorite ever touring destination? Um, yeah, if I had to pick one country, I'd, I'd still say South Africa. It was always beautiful country. Yeah, Cape Town was great. It was more really, honestly, it was really just, I loved Durban. That had great surf. It was, the beauty about South Africa in general was like, you were, you were so close to something so unique. Like the game parks there were just magic. I've only been able to do a few, but yeah, I love my time in South Africa. Yeah. Do you have a player that you played against that you would consider your toughest or the best player you played against or with? Uh, yeah, like George Smith was the best player I ever played with. He was remarkable. Like you think of, you combine Pocock's or Phil Ward's pilfering skills and you add that into Michael Hooper's attacking ability and you throw in a, you know, someone in the midfield. That's what George was. George could could stop points, could could score points or could create points. Like he was, he was a freak. And I think the best one I ever played against would, yeah, it would be McCaw, Richie McCaw. He was, he was just, I didn't realise until the end, like I, he wasn't overly big. He was, he was just so fit. He was so driven, and yeah, he was, he was everywhere. And he just, as I said before, he just constantly or continually improved his game, which you yeah. don't often see. You see a lot of guys get to 26, 27 and hold on. He just kept evolving. Apparently, George liked the beer as well, which just makes it more remarkable how good he was. Yeah, he often liked the thousand too. He was good at it, and and that's what it was remarkable. Like honestly, he could, he could socialize with the best of them, but he. You know, he'd be training the next day and you, you wouldn't know. Like, it was always this talk about George. I remember hearing this. You probably heard it. Like, he wasn't good in the beep test. Did you ever hear that? Like, he yeah. couldn't get over 10 or something. But I never saw that. I actually thought he was a really – he was a phenomenal athlete. Like, he was really well designed. Like, he was so thick. But he just had such good, like, contact fitness. He could just – he could compete physically all day. And even though he might not have been the best open field runner, like, a, you know, running hundreds or 200s, but – throwing a bit of up down and contact he was he just never stopped you know something that was remarkable remarkable about guys like him and and hoops is that they just never get injured either which is it's very unbelievable rare. it's insane in the hardest position in contact sport i reckon that was yeah i remember at one stage trying to work out i think he had a knee reconstruction once and he had a bit of a shoulder burn a problem take that away he probably missed i think he missed one game in eight years at the brumbies and he said he could have played. He just took the leg off because his shoulder was a bit sore. And I yeah. love the fact that he would just go from season to season. So he never did a pre-season. Yeah. He just go from Japan yeah. to Australia <laughs> to France. You know, so so yeah. he's played twenty-five seasons in ten years. You know, yeah. remarkable, mate. Last question, and it's the question I ask at the end of every podcast. What advice would you give eighteen-year-old Stephen Hoyles? Uh I don't think 18-year-old Stephen Hollis would listen to me, to be honest. So I'd, I'd really quickly, because I know he's a young, impatient kid, I'd quickly tell him just to not make the same mistake twice. Learn quickly from your mistakes because, yeah, I've made a lot, but 
I hope they haven't made the same one twice. Beautiful, mate. Great way to end. Thanks for this, buddy. I really appreciate it. Uh, hope you get a bit of downtime right, before it all kicks off again. Thanks, bro. Hey, mate, if you want to chat rugby at any stage as well, let me know if you get when you get back on the field. And Sounds I know DC's organised a few few good forward zooms with um, a couple of people here and there all around the world talking line out and scrum and more. And you should actually try and have a chat with our scrum coach, Paul Becerra. He's, so um, he he he's engaged to Abby. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so she right, used yeah. to train at the gym that I trained at in Cronulla. Yeah. So I, I know um, her. Lang? Justin yeah. Lang? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've got a few boys at the moment. No, he's good. He's, he's he's sort of adopted this new approach that Ireland and Saracens and Leicester are doing, the how they sort of set up their bind. He, he'll, he'll explain it better to you. But, um, yeah, it's pretty much like no help, no holding back from the aid and that's what everyone like. on their toes at, at a lower hold. So. Yeah, I like mate, it's, it's I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to talk to him. Less reset. Yeah. I might put you in touch via email. Mate, that, that'd be great. And um, eventually I'll pick your brain on some line-out stuffs because that's an area I need to Yeah, learn, cool. If that's yeah. cool. Yeah, I've got to do more on scrums. That's how it works. You know what you did? You don't, learn, you don't know the other stuff, eh? <laughs> that's, mate, that's it. Well, I've, I've, before I let you go, one of the things I found, so I became the second grade coach before the first trial game. We had okay. some drama. Todd goes, all right, you're now they, – they warm me up on the field. He goes, all right, now you're the second-grade coach. I'm going, okay, fuck. So I went from only ever having to worry about what props do to learning what halfbacks do, <laughs> wingers do, how hard it yeah. is to defend it outside centre, what the kicking game yeah. is. I've gone, fuck. <laughs> Mate, that's why sevens. It sounds a bit silly, but if you ever get a chance, take a fucking team for a weekend in sevens. You've got to learn everything. You've like, you got to learn research. You've got to learn line-out throws, scrums, ruck, everything. Like it's – the only thing you don't really learn is probably the kicking game. I think if I ever took a sevens team, they'd, they'd laugh at me. Actually, I know yeah, they'd but laugh tag at along, me. Tag along when Southo's do an off-season one and just go and watch and just... I will, I will. You'd be surprised what you pick up and how it's very easy to go from... It's not very easy. It's a lot easier going from sevens to fifteens and fifteens to sevens. Okay. Okay, interesting. Yeah, interesting. from a coaching point of view too, you know. Okay. Um, I got to run, buddy. Thanks so much for your time. Right, Good bro. to chat. We'll Thanks, talk soon. Chubby. Take care. See Thanks, mate. mate.